Have a go at that one. Ready? This is Landed from Farmerama. Part 1 The Family Farm. My name's Colin Gordon, or Col for short. I'm a farmer's son, and I grew up on our family farm, inching down in the Scottish Highlands. For years, in fact, pretty much for my whole adult life, my mission has been to prove that this type of family farm works and that it has a future. But last year, I stumbled across something that shook my beliefs and challenged many of my deep-held assumptions. From the place I'm at now, I'm excited about the possibilities for a future beyond the small family farm. A future that could serve everyone better, including farmers, here in the Highlands, across the UK and beyond. In this series, I want to share that journey with you. But let's not jump too far ahead of ourselves. Best to start where it starts for me, here at Inching Down. If you travel northward through Scotland, about four hours from the border you'll pass a sign saying Falche don Gaeltach, Welcome to the Highlands. Keep going north and you'll reach Inverness, the region's major town. It's situated at the point where the mouth of the famous Loch Ness merges into the Murray Firth, which then in turn runs out into the North Sea. To the west and the south of it, the terrain is rocky, steep, full of forestry and upland estates. And to the north and the east, the landscape is much flatter and more fertile. A patchwork quilt of neat fields of arable and pasture, peppered here and there with old strands of woodland. Across the water is the Black Isle, a long, narrow peninsula well known for its dark and rich soils, which give it its name. On the north end of the peninsula is another firth, the Cromarty Firth, a long, shimmering body of water protected from the rough North Sea by a narrow opening between two large headlands called the Suitors, so-called because they were thought to resemble two giant shoemakers bent over their work. The Firth is dotted with huge oil rig platforms brought in for maintenance, a constant reminder of the region's major industry. The north side of this firth is the place I'm from and where I call home, an area called Easter Ross. Between small towns, the land at sea level here is almost all fertile and flat arable land, rotating between crops of wheat, barley and oilseed rape. But turn your back on the sea and travel inland and you'll see the landscape very quickly changes from these lowland arable fields to mostly uninhabited upland rough ground that's used for forestry, deer shooting, or occasionally grazed by sheep. This drastic change happens within the space of about five miles, and it's at this point where the transition between fertile lowland and barren upland happens that you'll find the farm I grew up on, the place I've always loved and that I've now returned to, Inchin Down Farm.
A long straight farm track takes you up the hill to the old sandstone farmhouse and the beautiful stone barn that sits across from it. From here, you look out across the old pastures and the new woodlands that make up the 270 acres that are inching down. A line of ash and alder trees slice through the middle of the farm, protecting a small river, or burn, which long ago was channeled to bring our lowest fields into use. On warm summer days growing up, myself and my brothers Donald and Neil would always be playing in the cold waters of the burn, out of trouble, avoiding nettle stings and surrounded by the cool aniseed smell of cow parsley, while my dad worked his sheep and his cattle, just like his father before him. In Gaelic, which used to be the region's main language, the name Inchendown means Meadow of the Dun. Dun means fort, and you can easily imagine the rich pastures of our fields descending from ancient meadows. The area around the farm has been inhabited for at least 6,000 years, and there's all sorts of signs of Bronze Age settlements and Iron Age forts. And on a neighbouring farm, they found a number of intricately carved Pictish stones from the 7th century. Our fields are dotted with large piles of stones and boulders, which we believe to be ancient burial mounds. This is a place full of history. And this farm has been part of my family's history since the 1950s, when my grandfather started renting and then bought the land at Inchin Down, which my dad David, or Dagger, then took on in 1988 and has made his own. But as well as farming, my dad's big passions are music and people. That's something my wife Sarah quickly learned. Start by telling me what Inch and Down is to people. The place revolves around getting told stories and telling stories. It revolves around always being food available. Like it's in normal times, there's always people just turning up, telling stories, hanging out. Despite being a farm pretty much in the middle of nowhere, there's always people there. There's always stuff happening. The music is very much just as much a part of the farm as the farming. Yeah, something your dad always says with a massive twinkle in his eye is that Inch and Down was always the only two up, two down in the world, the world <laughs> that had a ballroom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The place was, is, has always been about much more than farming. It's not just a farm. There's a culture to the place. For practically all my life, I've not ever imagined ending up anywhere else. No matter where I've been, my compass has always pointed north to this place. Even before I knew I wanted to farm, I knew that this was where I wanted to spend my life. There's all sorts of associations that people have, and certainly that I have. The barn was a place, as well as to have animals, it was to have parties, to have proper barn dances. There's... There's, 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 a soul. there's a soul to the place. And that's because of the people. That's because of the memories. Yeah. It would be felt by a lot of people if Inch and Down wasn't 
inching down anymore. Yeah. As a model, the small family farm is always something I've seen as an ideal, integral to any vision of a more just and ecological world. For about a decade, my goal has been to work out how to keep inching down in the family and farm it in a sustainable way, to play my part in keeping this model of farming alive. And I remember when we first had this conversation about with my brothers Donald and Neil about the possibility of selling the farm, none of us wanted it to be sold. I mean, that might be a lot of money being freed up for all of us. The idea of selling it then, I mean, I think it scared us all, just the idea of it not being there anymore and what it means to us. And I sometimes think about that, just like imagining going to visit it if it had been sold and like 20 years later I went to went to visit it. Um, I mean, I'm sure that's something that a lot of people have to deal with, but I don't know, I think it would be like going and visiting a grave of a family member or something. That disconnect, just being disconnected from it. When I was in my teens, I really didn't fancy farming. It seemed pretty uninspiring and unrelenting. A lot of hard work, outside in bad weather all day by yourself. All for what seemed to me like very little reward and without much room for creativity. However, in my early 20s, I discovered agroecology, which applies ecological concepts to agriculture. And I realised that farming could play a major part in tackling many of the global problems I was starting to become aware of. The climate crisis, biodiversity loss, health inequality, and people's need for meaningful work. It was an incredibly empowering moment, and for the first time it occurred to me that I was in a relatively unique and very privileged position. Because, unlike the vast majority of people, I already had access to land. I could actually put some of these ideas I was becoming exposed to into practice. I decided the best course of action was to pack up my bags and set off to learn some of these skills I thought I'd need in order to turn inching down into a model for what small and medium-sized farms can achieve. Originally, I thought this would involve a couple of years travelling to and working on farms that were doing inspiring things before heading back up the road and cracking on with it. But whilst working on a farm in the south of England, life got in the way of the plan. I happened to meet my wife, Sarah, whose family, friends and career all tied her to the south of England. What I'd thought would be a year or two turned into almost a decade away. It was not her dream. It is not her dream to be a farmer. Or dare I say it, a farmer's wife. <laughs> but that was my dream. We can't just roll up the farm and take it down to wherever suits. And it's taken us a very long time to get to the position where we were able to find a job that Sarah has felt that it isn't a compromise to move up and allow me to farm. In 2020, after years of working out how to try to do that, and lots of tears and lots of lots of conversations and lots of strategic planning as to like the roadmap to moving back to the farm, we made it back to the farm. We moved back with an intention of trying to get more involved in the running of it. The early on conversations I'd had with dad about getting involved in the farm, dad wasn't ready to start stepping back when I first started having these conversations. I feel that when we returned back, there was a certain sense of relief 
from both mum and dad. I also think when we first started talking about this, I don't think they believed that we'd come back. Or how we'd get to come back. It's been so all-consuming that actually now we're here, it's kind of... Well, yeah, everything can begin. Now that we've finally made it back to the farm, I'm really excited to start trying to put into practice some of the things I've learned during my time away. Dad's been amazingly receptive, like, so far. First thing we've, we're trying to do is to set up a bakery on the farm, and we've put in 11 acres of, of grain, a heritage grain that is going to be used for the bakery. We've decided that we're going to, rather than have a commercial European beef cows, which is what Dad's sort of always done. We're going to switch over to native breeds, which is going to free up the barn to be able to do other things. So there's all sorts of stuff like moving, definitely mm. moving in the right direction. And it's really exciting. But yeah, I suppose it's just, we're going to obviously have to like find ways to make these enterprises start to work, start to make sense, start to not only sort of be an ecologically good idea, but financially a sound, a sound move for the farm to, to move in. Mm, and make sure it all meshes together as well. Yeah, I suppose there's there's just bigger conversations as well about like we're doing our bit on on inching down, but how can maybe that be part of a bigger thing with maybe other farms trying to do similar sort of stuff? And I mean, there seems to be a lot of a lot of that in the area. Like we're we're meeting farmers who are interested in similar things. And mm. yeah, it's interesting. As soon as you sort of wave a little flag and say we're over here, we're interested in this stuff. It's amazing how many people crop up who are thinking about similar things. Yeah, rather than just us doing our thing here. Us plugging away on this side of yeah, the hill, them plugging away them. on the yeah, other exactly. side of the hill. Exactly. Yeah. There's stuff happening, and that's all within the first year. Yeah, it seems like there's, there's a lot of change. I want to play a part in shaping the transition, into an agroecological future where food production works in sympathy with the rest of the natural world. All the while making good, healthy and nutritious food available, affordable and accessible in convenient ways to everyone in society. This is something I still strongly believe is possible and I once believed that small family farms were the best way of achieving it. I believe that all we needed to do was create enough models of how family farms could go about doing it and then obviously other more conventional farms would follow suit and boom, we'd have a system change. But now, 15 years after I decided I wanted to farm, and despite seeing a lot more folks interested in this kind of agroecological approach, it feels like we're not actually that much closer to achieving this vision. After all, farms are producing great food using agroecological methods, but those farms are in the minority, and that food still tends to go to a middle-class market. It's just not accessible to all parts of society. And this has been the case for several decades now. Despite a huge amount of interest, good intentions, goodwill and belief that this approach will change things, I just don't see that change happening at the speed and scale that we need it to. I've been speaking to a lot of folk about this to see if there might be alternative ways to go about making these changes. I asked NHS nutritionist and physician Kate Bulmer what she thought farmers could be doing to help improve more people's diets. If people do not have time in society to cook and to shop 
or are exhausted to do so, then we need to make food, good food, as absolutely as accessible in front of our hands, the easiest thing to get as we possibly can. And you look at COVID and for every person that has stayed home and like learned how to make sourdough, there's, you know, another person that's on a food bank or, you know, working. If we're going to carry on working and living in the way that we are, you know, we need fresh, good quality food presented to us in a way that is just in front of us. So it's our go to natural choice, which means you guys, the farmers need to somehow get that into us. And how you do that, I don't know. (laughs) I don't think I know either. It's a huge challenge. And I'm starting to wonder whether this really can be achieved within the existing family farm model. At a really, really basic level, in order to grow all this food for an agroecological future, we need to have a lot more people on the land. Certainly at first, while new systems are being built and established. Because, I mean, here's the main thing about agroecology. It does require more labour. This is Adam Callow, a researcher at the James Hutton Institute in Aberdeen. It can easily produce as much food and more nutritious food than the industrial system, but the labour cost is much higher at the beginning. So you need a mass of, of more individuals on the land that can find dignified work in order to convert and reconcile the land and, 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 and do agroecology. Then the theory is, as the systems start to develop, then the labor tails off. Once you have that kind of robust uh, agroforest where you know the, the plants are working together, the animals are working together. But in the beginning, when you're dealing with just land that was you know, for a monoculture system, you need more people if you're going to do it without, you know, the the highly industrialized system. That's fine and well, but it's so difficult for folks to get access and secure tenure to get themselves onto the land in the first place. I was born on a farm and I've still struggled to find a way to get myself back there. So what hope is there for folks who don't have a farm just waiting for them somewhere? For folks who aren't already landed? And even if you are lucky enough to work out how to gain access to land, It's really difficult to make a living from a family farm. Start-up costs to get infrastructure in place can be huge. Prices for farm produce are often low and almost always unpredictable. There's generally very little room for error or for failure, and farmers can find themselves further and further in debt just trying to keep up. It's not easy. And these financial pressures can often be combined with social pressures. Whereas in the past, farms used to be hives of activity, with lots of people busily sharing the workload, doing lots of different things and keeping each other entertained. Today, farms are very often run by just a single individual. Many farmers today are overworked, isolated, and indeed, lonely. I asked my dad what it was like when he was growing up on his father's farm. Yeah, when my dad was farming at Newmore, we did sheep and cattle, and we also did barley and wheat. And... We had a grieve and we had some men working for us. It was really quite different from how I've been farming uh, on my own. Uh, you know, there'd be tractor men, there'd be shepherd, cattleman, and so on. When he sold the farm, Newmore Farm that is, I've, I've been working completely single-handedly here at Inchindown since uh, late 88. There have been quite a lumber, number of articles I've read in farming magazines and things in the last three or four years, I suppose, which are concerned about the mental health of, of farmers because, you know, there are financial and 
issues and, and issues of loneliness, uh, you know, which are affecting them quite badly, I think. And people, I think, are, are really quite concerned about this nowadays. Add all of this to the fact that the average age of a farmer in the UK is now over 59. There's a big looming question about what will happen in all these family farms once this generation of farmers retires. Farm succession is hugely complex, and in many cases there are no obvious successors. You know, if you all lived nearby, then we would probably, and all wanted a go at it, I suppose we would have to try and, and figure something out. That isn't particularly the case at the moment. But, you know, it's an age-old problem. It's It's been the problem since people started farming. I mean, typically the eldest son, whether he liked it or not very often, will, you know, got the farm and that was that. You know, and somebody else, you know, went into the army and somebody else went to the church or something, you know. and, and yeah. <laughs> But typically the oldest son would get the get the farm. One very, very good reason why farms might be sold today is so that it's a fair and equal split between multiple children, rather than just this old and outdated tradition of the eldest son getting everything. And as I've discovered, even if there is a child keen to embark on a farming career, so many things have to fall into place to allow this to happen. The family farm structure only works if you're born in the right place, born to the right family, everything lines up at the right time, you have exactly the right partner, it's just so inaccessible. It's not that promising a picture, and I haven't even mentioned Brexit yet, or the increased likelihood of trade deals that are unlikely to fall in favour of small farmers. We're also starting to see the emergence of carbon markets in response to the climate crisis, where large corporates are starting to snap up huge areas of land, including farmland, in order to plant trees, restore peatland and to rewild. All of these things are critically important, but the way that they're shaping up to be implemented will almost certainly mean that even fewer people can live in or have a say in what happens to these landscapes and the farms within them. We're starting to see policy that's incentivising farmers to get out and to retire, but the question of who will have ownership and access to this freed-up land remains unanswered to me. Take all of this together, and it becomes clear that the family farm model has become very fragile. And to be honest, its future looks pretty bleak. Over the next few years, as farmers retire or simply throw in the towel, with no succession plan in place, a huge amount of land is going to be coming onto the market. And because farms would be getting bigger and bigger, most holdings now are several hundreds or even thousands of acres. There are very, very few people or even organizations in a position to bid on these. Because the land is treated like a financial asset in, in terms of its expected future return, what is to think that the land is gonna be transferred to young farmers or farmers at all, right? It's going to be transferred to family members. Uh, it's going to be bought by the larger farmers, right? There's a future there where the kind of existing owners of land just continue to consolidate. You know, as you get more automation and you get this kind of vision of sustainable intensification as one of the acceptable paths 
towards net zero 2045 or climate smart agriculture, right? Those smaller parcels are actually, you know, undesirable. So the chances are we're going to see an acceleration of the trend towards bigger, more industrialized farms and carbon capture landscapes with fewer people on the land and greater concentration of land ownership, resulting in a very small number of people in control of huge amounts of land. The likely result is a situation where people are completely disconnected from the processes of food production, where nature and so-called wilderness is over there, while we, the humans, are over here. Where the countryside is seen as a place we go to rather than a place that we're part of. And where we complete the process of separating the human world from the rest of the world. In other words, the trajectory we're on right now is towards the opposite of an agroecological vision. I also don't believe that farmers like Dad want to see the scenario I've just described play out on their farms. These farmers are their farms. They love their farms. Their lives are completely intertwined with the land. These farmers have an attachment and connection to their land which goes far beyond what you might have with other things you could own. In many ways, this love and care for place is something I think could offer hope for the future and for imagining something different. But I'm not sure it's enough. I love the family farm too, and I desperately want to make sure it can thrive in the future. I want our farm, inching Down, to be a model for how folks might be able to farm in ecological ways. I want to provide dignified and fulfilling livelihoods for many people and to feed my local community. And I want to feel confident that this will carry on once the next generation takes over. I've been wrangling with all this for a while now, focusing on farming practices and business models that might make this possible within the family farm. But in the summer of 2020, not all that long after we moved back to the farm, I stumbled across an online post with a sentence in it that shook me in a way I've rarely been shaken. I remember sitting at the farm an inch down, reading about all this stuff that was happening in America, um, watching the Black Lives Matter protests happening in Bristol, sort of streaming it virtually while we were sat in... Yeah, in the middle of nowhere, up, and up at the farm, just isolated from everything, everything else. But it felt very Dif- far distant. removed and felt very impotent in a way, like kind of really sort of protected because we're so far away, but also frustrated that there didn't seem to be any outlet, any way that yeah, other I mean, than just talking about it and, you know, we, yeah, all this kind of stuff. We were just struggling to work out what what this means for us. So, yeah, I was I was scrolling through my social media feed in the aftermath of, of all these demonstrations and, and protests very much with this on my mind and we'd had all these conversations and trying to work out what it means for us up here so far removed from where all this stuff seemed to be playing out and yeah came across this sentence that just jumped out at me um the small family farm is a colonial concept i felt like i'd been punched in the stomach I don't know, maybe it's been like sort of building for subconsciously or just under the surface for 
perhaps a long time. Maybe there have been doubts there, but this just rang so true for me. And I, d- I didn't quite understand why, but yeah, what if, what if we've got the wrong idea? What if this is the wrong approach? What does this mean? What does this mean for us? Mm. What does it mean for inching down? It's so much more layers to peel back and work out how did we get here? I came away from that moment with my mind buzzing. What were the implications of this for me, for other people in similar situations to myself, and for society as a whole? So I set off on a journey of discovery, a journey that has led me to believe that this statement, the small family farm is a colonial concept, lies both at the heart of the dilemma I found myself in, as I try to imagine how to achieve my agroecological vision, And crucially, though, I also believe it lies at the heart of the potential solutions. It's this journey that I'm going to share with you over the course of this series. In the next episode, I'll learn that here in the Highlands and Islands, it's only in the past couple hundred years that private family farms, as we know them today, have existed at all, and that prior to this, the people here had a completely different understanding of how to relate to land. I'll be asking why this understanding is no longer here, and what exactly happened. Landed is produced by Paul Gordon and Katie Revel, with executive producer Abby Rose. Our project manager is Olivia Oldham. Huge thanks to Josina Callist for her guidance and input, and to Sarah Nicholas for all her help and support. Thanks also to Joe Barrett, The music for Landed is by Dagger Gordon and me, Cole Gordon. Funding for the project was provided by the funding platform Necessity. Farmerama is committed to keeping all our episodes free and to paying our team a living wage. To do so, we rely on the support of you, our community of listeners. If you'd like to help us make more podcasts, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash farmerama. This episode featured Kate Bulmer, Adam Callow, Sarah Nicholas and Dagger Gordon.